Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. Uh, my name is Amanda and today we are going to be talking about drug criminalization. So I'm joined by two guests, if you both don't mind introducing yourselves. Hi, I am Gillian McNall. I'm a lecturer in criminology from the School of Social Sciences, Education and Social Work. Hi, I'm Kiva Anderson and I'm a third year JD student at Queen's. So today we're going to talk about the criminalization of drugs. Um, this conversation really started because of the new legislation in Canada. Um, so on the 17th of October of this year, Canada became the second country to legalize recreational cannabis use. Uh, Uruguay was the first in 2013. Right. So, so I'll just give a basic rundown of what was introduced along with this legislation, and then we can get into a conversation about drug criminalization and legalization. Right. So along with legalization, the Canadian government um, has also introduced um, the pardoning of people who have charges for possessing cannabis um, of 30 grams or less. So this has all taken place under something called the Cannabis Act, and it lays out a federal legal framework for legalization. It's important to note that the, there are changes, though, um, so the provinces and territories can interpret this legislation how they wish. Um, but generally, we'll talk about the federal regulations. Um, so adults who are 18 and older are legally allowed to possess up to 30 grams of cannabis in public. They can share up to 30 grams with other adults. They can buy fresh or dried cannabis or cannabis oil from provincially licensed retailers. Um, they can grow up to four cannabis plants for personal use, and they can make cannabis products um, such as food or drinks in their houses. The government alongside this has also committed to providing $46 million over the next five years for public education and awareness events um, on the use of cannabis. And just to provide some statistics, um, Statistics Canada reports that in 2017, almost 48,000 cannabis-related drug offences were reported to the police. Uh, the majority, so approximately 80% of these, were for possession. So there's an attempt to take this out of the criminal justice system. So I thought we could move on to a discussion more generally about why drugs are criminalized. Um, so what, what are your takes? Why do you guys think that drugs have been criminalized? Well, I suppose if we're thinking about drug criminalization, one of the key frameworks would be looking at Stan Cohen and his idea of moral panics that feed into government responses towards specific populations. And these have come in waves through the 18th and the 19th centuries, from the prohibition of alcohol and the demon drink, through moral panics on black men and the jazz scene in the 1940s and 1950s in America, and through the mods and the amphetamine scene in the 1960s. And so it's this idea about panic unfolding across society about specific groups 
and then the government implementing forms of social control towards them. Yeah, because in a lot of places, drugs weren't criminalized kind of before the 1900s. So this is a relatively recent phenomenon that we've seen. Mm-hmm. And it is often, I think we see, we've see we seen the same thing in Canada. The prohibition of drugs is linked with, with trying to target specific groups mm-hmm. and appease the general population by, you know, identifying this problem and saying, oh, we're doing something about this mm-hmm. um, by putting people in jail and criminalizing mm-hmm. the substances that they're using. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think a key issue is that you can see is that it's not necessarily related to the harm that is enacted by specific drugs. So that is particularly the case with cannabis. And if we think about the harms that occur as a result of cannabis in society and compare that, say, with the harms that occur because of alcohol, which is legalised and taxed, and we see that in the links between alcohol and crimes that are committed in society and the links between alcohol and the harms that are addressed by our health services as well. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the criminological literature links alcohol with crime much more conclusively than you can link drugs with Mm -hmm. crime. Um, Particularly, I think it's associated with lots more violent types of criminal behavior Mm -hmm. um, that people, alcohol often makes people angry (laughs) and commit crime. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I think one like very interesting thing about the UK is that they class cannabis as a class B drug, um, whereas alcohol is completely legal. And the other drugs that are in that class would be like ketamine, um, codeine, amphetamines, like mephedrone, things like that. Um, I find it really interesting that cannabis is classed in there, whereas there's so many other countries and like different states in the US legalizing cannabis. Um, There's clearly a lot of research done to show that there's, it doesn't cause a lot of kind of physical harms. It's not causing people to go out and commit crime. Um, It's not linked with a lot of violent crime, etc. So I find it really interesting that it's a class B here. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's also the, the old discussion about, you know, are we just parenting people? Are we just telling people, you know, if most of the harm that's associated with drugs is harm that people are doing to themselves rather Mm -hmm. than inflicting on other people or causing crime, you know, are we, is this kind of the extension of a way to control people? And should the state be intervening in people's private lives in that way? Should, should people have control Mm-hmm. over what they put into their bodies if they want to put those substances into their bodies. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also a much more insidious issue, which is that when we look at the enforcement of criminalization, we see this intersection of class and race with regards to who is punished for drug use. And in fact, this pattern of criminalization being used to target specific groups And so Michelle Alexander in The New Jim Crow talks extensively about this in relation to African-Americans in the United States and sees these processes of criminalization enacted by the war on drugs as actually the reinforcement of a racial caste system in the United States, you know, as an alternative method to control African-American populations in the advent of the end of the new Jim Crow. And you see that through specific measures, so such as criminal justice responses to cocaine and the disproportionate responses to crack cocaine um, in comparison to powdered cocaine, um, which is seen to be 
directly related to African-American use of crack cocaine in comparison to white American use of powder cocaine. So it's not just about the parenting, I think, of people and taking away our choice about what we want to take. It's also about inflicting class and racial-based harm upon huge populations of people. It's very true. You see in the media, like different celebrities and whatnot, it's it's quite clear that a lot of them, it's represented that they use cocaine quite often, things like that. And even other celebrities who would be advocates of marijuana, like pre-legalization in Canada, and they're clearly not getting targeted by the police. They're not being criminalized, etc. So you can definitely see there's a, cl- like a class and race issue there. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that's replicated uh, globally. And we see in the UK the disproportionate stop and search rates for uh, black youth. And um, it's all reflective of this harm of criminalization, I think, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a really important theme to pick up on is that if we are criminalize pe- criminalizing people for potentially even just using small amounts of drugs, yeah. What kind of harm are we causing to those populations, particularly if it is true that we're the criminal justice system is targeting people who are in more vulnerable or socially disadvantaged positions? Mm. You know, what kind of further harm does criminalization do? Mm. Like, what is the goal of criminalization? And I suppose it comes back to this idea of what we use punishment for in Mm -hmm. society. You know, so are we criminalizing drugs because we want to deter people from using drugs, in which case we've done um, demonstrably a terrible job? Um, Or is it because we want to rehabilitate them and put the reformed drug user back into society, in which case, uh, demonstrably, we're doing a terrible job? You know, drug use within prisons is one of the biggest operational issues across prison estates. Um, So that can only leave us then with the fact that we want to punish these people and demonise them because uh, the, the other reasons why we'd be sending them to prison to try and uh, create this um, impact of drug reduction in society and reducing the harms of drugs in society just doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, giving someone a criminal record for potentially using a very small amount of drugs has an impact on them for the rest of their lives. So if the goal is rehabilitation and reintegration and trying to stop people from using drugs, it's very ineffective to send people to prison Mm -hmm. um, for using small amounts of drugs when, you know, that is potentially stopping them from being able to get jobs in the quote unquote legitimate field of work um, Mm -hmm. in the future. So potentially causing much more harm to these people that you're right, you know, if the goal is to punish, then that seems to make a lot more sense of as to why we're sending people to prison um, mm-hmm. for using drugs. And I don't think it really gets to the core of why people mm-hmm. use drugs either, you know. Why is drug use such a big issue across our society? And in a way, I suppose, focusing on cannabis... Um, there are two issues that emerge with cannabis use first or with the criminalization of cannabis first the fact that actually it's not particularly harmful and we see that through say recent legislative changes in britain with regards to the use of medicinal cannabis 
you know. Um, and then there is the strand of trying to reduce the harms of drugs in society. So you have those two issues running side by side, I think. Um, Criminalisation in relation to something that is not creating harm in proportion to other substances, and then this idea of criminalising specific populations. I think it's quite clear that we're um, well, quite pro either decriminalization or legalization of marijuana. But do you think, say, there's quite a there's a fentanyl like opioid crisis in Canada right now? Um, what would you say is your opinion uh, in regards to people who are perhaps like selling these drugs but not necessarily using them? Um, do you think there should be like criminalizing them? Obviously, it still is that way in Canada. We are criminalizing people for selling those types of drugs, but. So we've talked about all these kind of harms of criminalization. Um, a number of different approaches have been developed for trying to minimize these harms um, in relation to criminalizing drugs. So there have been different strategies that have been adopted around the world. We've seen some places use um, decriminalization, harm reduction approaches, legalization. So maybe we can talk through what those are and how they've been used um, in different places and the kind of pros and cons of those approaches. Um, well, I think with regards to decriminalization, uh, this idea that we lessen the penalties and regulate in a similar way that, that we would smaller offences um, instead of using criminal law makes a lot of sense. The decriminalization approach really is you know, making it legal to use these drugs and eliminating the use of the criminal justice system largely from um, being associated with drug use. And so we, a good example, I think, is how we regulate alcohol. Yeah. So it's using the criminal justice system kind of in that way, but more broadly using regulations in society to, you know, have minimum regulations for age. So who can, who can use it, mm-hmm. um, where you can sell it, who can sell it, where you Mm -hmm. can buy it, all of those kinds of things. Um, So using that kind of approach for other kinds of drugs as well. Yeah, and I think an an important aspect of that is this idea of divesting from criminal justice as a response to the harms of drugs. And so it's not just about um, putting in place this process of decriminalization. It's also about building something else in its place that can respond to the harm of drugs. So, you know, this idea of justice reinvestment, um, investing in public health responses, in social welfare responses, areas of governance that can really get to the root of why drugs are used in society. What are the issues in play that create drug use in society and what needs to be funded and put in place to reduce the harms of drug use, not just on individuals, but on whole communities. Yeah, so it's not just a matter of decriminalization, decriminalizing drugs, but it's also putting in place these broader strategies to look at why people are using drugs and why certain places have drug use problems. Yeah. So if we, maybe we can sidestep for a second and just talk about the factors in relation to why people are using drugs before we move on to some of the other approaches. So what do you know about why people use drugs generally? I think 
Generally, a, a lot of times they're used as kind of a coping mechanism. Um, perhaps with harder drugs, maybe they haven't, maybe they've been prescribed something and it has kind of built up and become an addiction of its own. Um, it definitely tends to, like, a lot of underlying mental health issues, I think, um, undiagnosed, and people are finding these substances, finding, well, this makes me feel a little bit better, even if it's temporarily, and maybe those are kind of some of the reasons that people are turning to drug use. Um, in regards to things like cannabis, um, a lot of times it, it could just be recreational use as well, just for fun. Um, but I would say in regards to harder drugs and perhaps marijuana too, that it could be underlying um, mental health issues. But, mm. mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that there are definitely a number of factors. I mean, first of all, that point that you raised about people experimenting with mm -hmm. drugs. So I think you get a certain proportion of youth who will experiment with drugs. And then what is our response to that? In fact, the processes of criminalization of specific groups of youth actually feeds into the entrenchment of drug use, I think, because you respond to their use with these processes that cut off their options in society. You know, giving a young person a criminal record, demonizing a young person and stigmatizing their drug use. Those implementations of criminal justice are not applied evenly across classes in society. So I think there's that issue. And then, as you say, there are these issues with the underlying factors of harm that feed into individuals' use of drugs as a coping mechanism mm -hmm. in society. And um, I think there's some really interesting work coming out about adverse childhood experiences and the links between adverse childhood experiences and use of drugs in adult life that shows what a bad job society is doing at responding to vulnerable people in society who have experienced harm um, and putting in place criminal justice responses. It's really a societal societal failing. Um, and then I think feeding into the other point you made about people who have experienced prescription drugs, you know, who have, in response to harms that they have experienced, been prescribed drugs by the health sector. There's this issue then with um, addictive patterns and then having to turn to illicit markets to continue those processes of self-medication or the addiction rising to such levels that these illicit markets need to be turned to. And again, I think prescribing drugs, prescription drugs for certain issues doesn't necessarily get to the heart of the matter. So I think there's a lot of complex interrelated factors in there. Yeah, I think all of those factors that you've both brought up have, can be backed up within the literature, yeah. um, within criminology, sociology, social work, psychology. There's a lot of really interesting work going on right now in relation to kind of trauma research mm -hmm. and looking at this link between trauma and drug use. Um, and there's all kinds of supporting data to say that once someone experiences a traumatic event, it often is the way that people can cope by using 
drugs mm-hmm. in whatever capacity that means. And so you know, the way that we need to address that is by having these counseling services that address both underlying mental health and trauma conditions, as well as addictions at the same time. And as a society, that's something that we've largely failed, I think, to implement. Um, so, you know, if that's what most of the people coming from this kind of psychology trauma perspective are advocating, yet we're putting people in the criminal justice system, we're, no, we're not solving the roots of these problems that could be, you know, deeply rooted in trauma and, and these kinds of emotional experiences. Yeah. And I think you see, and certainly in the UK, where you still have the criminalization of drugs, you see prisons and criminal justice starting to be responsive to these harms through implementing a harm reduction policy and harm reduction strategies within the prison institution. For me, there's a real tension in that, you know, in putting people into an oppressive site of punishment and then trying to do deep therapeutic rehabilitative work with them with regards to their drug use. I just think there's an incongruence there that can't be overcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think we can also talk about harm reduction more generally and the way that it's been used in the community as well, because harm reduction has been used in a whole in a whole bunch of different ways. As you mentioned, it is becoming more widely used within prisons. The effectiveness of that can definitely be questioned. Um, But we've also seen these strategies that are adopted in the community to try and reduce the harms that are associated with drug using and making sure that people who are using drugs are doing it in a safer way That's it's going to cause less harm for them and for broader communities around them. So we see things like safe needle exchanges, trying to prevent the spread of, you know, HIV and other diseases that spread through the use of of needles that are being shared. Mm -hmm. And by providing clean needles, at least then we're helping to stop the spread of these kind of diseases, particularly amongst really vulnerable populations that often use intravenous drugs. Um, Or we see, you know, clinics where people can go and use drugs safely under the supervision of a medical professional often or someone who's been trained so that, you know, if someone overdoses accidentally, then that can be addressed immediately to try and help prevent um, accidental overdose deaths and things like that. Um, So did you have any reflections to share on these kind of harm reduction approaches that have been used more widely? Um, I think the... I've, I've seen kind of a rise, especially in like music festival culture where drug use is quite rife. Um, and I know in places like Ontario, um, you can go to different health clinics and whatnot and get uh, naloxone injections for people who might experience an overdose. And like those are potentially life saving tools. Um there was kind of a, a lot of public outcry about that, though, saying that it's a waste of like taxpayers' money and that if people are choosing to use these drugs, then like because people are still paying for, let's say, EpiPens themselves, but people can get these sort of drug, like these sort of life saving drugs for free. And there was kind of an outrage towards it. Um, but I definitely think it just greater public education needs to be put in place about drugs in general. I know since the legalization of uh, marijuana in Canada, I've noticed a lot of um, Health Canada advertisements on television um, telling people how to safely use cannabis and how to safely, um, like how much you should take, how much you shouldn't take. And 
if you're going to experiment with it, at least you've got a little bit of background information. Whereas I, like, I feel like for other drugs, people don't have that at all, which is why a lot of accidents are maybe happening. Um, and then, of course, you have the problem with drugs not being regulated in any way and things being laced with different things. I know in Canada, we have had a problem with a lot of kind of recreational drugs being laced, like uh, MDMA, things like that, being laced with fentanyl and causing accidental overdoses. So I definitely think any sort of harm reduction through education or through providing any sort of service, including the safe injection sites, is going to be beneficial in the long run. Um, I definitely think using the tax money from legalizing these drugs and putting it towards that is the best thing, in my opinion, that you could do. But. Yeah. And I think you picked up on a really important point, actually, that we haven't discussed so far, is that when drugs are criminalized, often that means that you can't get reliable information about you know, how to use drugs safely, that those kinds of conversations can't take place because there's all this, you know, fear and stigma around drug use. And one of the things that you often see in places that have legalized or decriminalized drugs is that along with that, there is a public education campaign where people learn, you know, the harms of drugs. They also learn how to use drugs safely, the quantities they should be using, which are things that, you know, Young people are going to use drugs anyway. People have used drugs throughout history for as long as they've existed. Cavemen probably, you know, fermented fruit or something. <laughs> so, you know, I think as long as people are going to be using drugs, it's really important that we have information available, particularly for your young people. And I think having this legalization strategy or this criminalization or decriminalization strategy, along with it, we can have these conversations in public with our young people and say, you know, these are the harms of drugs, these are the risks, but also if you're going to use them, please do it in this way so that it's safer for you and safer for everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that's a good point you raise about the taxation, you know, because currently you have one of the biggest industries in the world and all of the profit is going into organized crime structures structures which create huge levels of global structural harm, structures that feed into larger issues of human trafficking, of, um, of arms sales. And so to take that out of the hands of organised crime and to use the profit that comes from it to actually create good in society and reduce the harm that is occurring across communities seems like an obvious solution. Um, it particularly whenever you see, as we have discussed, the harms that are actually put in place across communities by criminalisation as a response. It's, I'm just incredulous that governments can't see how taking the money from taxation of drugs to feed it into the National Health Service, which is the governance structure that is responding to the harms of drugs anyway, could be advantageous. And it really speaks to the idea that responding to drugs, governance responses to drugs is not necessarily based in what is the most rational solution. You know, going back to this idea of Stan Cohen and moral panics, we see also the concept of moral entrepreneurs and governments being reinforced through penal populism 
and these ideas of being tough on crime that are attractive to the public. So I think bring it back, you know, decriminalise it, tax it and bring the money back to communities. I think that's a good segue to talk about Portugal and what they've been doing in Portugal. So since 2001, Portugal has decriminalized the possession and consumption of all drugs. Um, So I think the important thing here is that it's not just a decriminalization strategy. What also was implemented was all of this associated kind of harm reduction and investment in um, social services. So they didn't just decriminalize all of these drugs. They also introduced um, a lot more addiction services for people and made drug treatment more widely available and also implemented harm reduction policies. Um, And this is something that has proven to be very effective, but often doesn't seem to enter into public conversations about drug criminalization and drug use. Um, So apparently, I was reading an article this morning that um, it's been extremely effective in reducing the rates of HIV among drug users in Portugal. Um, So I have a statistic here that in 2000, um, 104.2 new cases per million um, people were infected with HIV, and it was reduced in 2015 to 4.2 cases per million. So that's a very dramatic decrease in the amount of people that are being infected with HIV, um, particularly through intravenous drug use. So I think in combination with that, people there are also dramatic drops in overdose deaths um, and drug-related crime. And this doesn't seem to, something, to be something that enters into public conversation. So maybe we can talk a bit about this kind of Portugal approach to mm. decriminalization. Yeah, I think it's a great example. And what I particularly like about Portugal is that you saw these evidence-based outcomes that you've just described with regards to uh, infection, infectious diseases and overdose rates and drug-related crime. And that created a cultural shift in how society thought about drugs in Portuguese uh, culture. And so despite the fact that Portugal went through different uh, government changes and had seen conservative government, the cultural shift that occurred was so significant that these processes of decriminalization have remained in place, you know, and I think that that's significant. Yeah, I think it was really important for reducing the stigma associated with drug use and exactly what you were saying, changing how people think about drugs and how they think about drug users and using evidence-based responses um, in relation to dealing with drug use and drug addiction in society. So maybe we can just very quickly to wrap things up, return to the Canadian context. So generally, do you have any reflections on the approach that's been taken in Canada um, in relation to the legalization of cannabis? I would say I'm definitely pro-legalization and I'm happy that the government has taken this step forward. I think perhaps that they could have waited a little bit longer to implement it solely because there has been uh, quite a few issues. Um, For example, you can't buy, well, for the first year anyway, you can't buy edibles um, in 
licensed dispensaries, which I think is kind of an issue, especially for people taking, uh, like using it for medicinal purposes. Edibles would be more beneficial, arguably, than smoking it in regards to harm on lungs, although there needs to be a lot more studies done, I think, on damage, uh, lung damage and marijuana use. Um, the laws in each province are a little bit different. And also in our, like within the first few days of Canada legalizing marijuana, we actually ran out. Um, there's been like a national shortage on marijuana. So I think maybe there's, they could have done, I don't know, a few more things to kind of organize themselves before fully legalizing it. There, we already in, especially in BC, we had a lot of uh, medical dispensaries open pre-legalization and it is quite, like it was very accessible to people who needed, you could you get a prescription from your doctor and you were able to access it. Um, but now since legalization, those dispensaries had to either shut down or they've had to comply with licensing. So they've had to pay a fee and license themselves. But uh, all of the stock that they had previously had to be destroyed um, and people still can't access edibles in Canada now. Canada now They can access oils and they can use those to make their own edibles at home. You can also grow up to four plants, as you said. Um, but I think one other issue is the dealing with the use and um, things like driving, for example. We have like breathalyzers for alcohol, but we don't necessarily have efficient roadside testing for um, people driving high. So I think the government maybe should have taken a little bit longer to kind of iron out the problems before legalizing, but I definitely think it is the right step forward. Um, one other issue would be the cost of marijuana currently. Uh, a lot of people have said that it's quite expensive. Um, and in order to eliminate the black market, you're going to have to make it the same price or like at least competitively priced with illegal marijuana. Otherwise, the black market's just going to still continue. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I think there definitely have been, a, there's been a lot of news coverage lately about the teasing problems or implementation problems mm -hmm. um, in relation to how Canada has done this and that maybe we as a nation weren't so prepared um, with what, what we were going to do as a strategy afterwards. Um, I think I would agree with everything that you're saying. And I think also, it helps to address some of the issues in relation to the fentanyl crisis, um, because there has been discussion about, you know, that a lot of um, marijuana that you would buy illegally has been kind of contaminated or contains traces of fentanyl, which probably most marijuana users would not want to ingest um, and don't know that they're ingesting. And that's quite dangerous because fentanyl is uh, a very contains a very high proportion of, of drugs and so it can do a lot of damage to people or kill people for for using it. Um, so I think another benefit of this legalization approach is that it helps to address some of the harms in relation to op opioid, the opioid crisis in Canada. Mm. Um, but then does the strategy go far enough? Should we just be legalizing cannabis or marijuana or should we be going further? And I think that's something that you know, you kind of highlighted, even in relation to the black market, we've potentially eliminated the black market for cannabis, but we have all of these other illegal drugs that people are still going to use. Um, the black market still exists for all of those. So have has Canada gone far enough? Well, I think it definitely hasn't gone far enough in that the ideal would be this uh, legalization model across all drugs. 
which runs hand in hand with um, justice reinvestment in other structures, public health, uh, social welfare, mental health. So building different strategies that can respond to the underlying issues of drug use and the harms of drug use instead. That said, I think that it's hugely significant that Canada is the first uh, of the G7 to take this step. And I think that it's gonna have a roll-on effect globally, you know, across the world. And so we see that with the green shoots with regards to the UK government and the use of medicinal cannabis in the UK. And hopefully that hopefully these green shoots will will produce better outcomes that are much more rational responses to drug use and that have better outcomes for communities that are really blighted by current criminal justice responses. Yeah, I think as criminologists, one of the theme that's one of the themes that's come up really is this evidence base. Are we doing what's best for people who are using drugs or potentially going to use drugs? And it just keeps coming back to that, you know, what works, what's best for people, what does criminalization do? I think these are all really important questions that hopefully will spark some broader conversations about um, publicly about, you know, the use of drugs and the harms of criminalization. So thank you both very much for joining me and thank you everyone for listening to this episode of LawPod. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle and LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. You can follow us on social media or on Twitter at QBLawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website lawpod.org and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and this was Lawpod.